I wait and wait, and then it, I fear it almost, and then it gets here, and I'm so excited to get back up here and see all of you guys again. I'm so glad I don't do this every week, but it's really nice to get up here and do from time to time. So uh, Dean has been talking about missions. Um, before that, if some of you recall, maybe in the summer, I was talking about getting out of the ghetto. And we're going to continue certain themes that, um, th- that were present throughout all of those. Uh, how many of you go to work every day? Raise your hand. Let's see it. Come on, people. This is going to be an interactive sermon. You better get ready for it now. <laughs> right? Now, oh, wait. Some of you moms didn't raise your hand. What, what's up? Okay, there you go. Uh, Mrs. Evie's down here in the front shouting. <laughs> now, I, I, I've often referred to myself as, as bivocational, and, and, and the study I've done, is it's a stupid thing to say. Everyone is bivocational. If you're a husband and a father, if you're a grandparent, a daughter, if you have a job, if you are a homemaker and a wife, if everyone is bivocational. Uh, I, I, as many of you know, I'm a court clerk. Uh, like most of you, I, I have a particular time I'm supposed to get up and be at work. Not for the last 10 weeks, but that's another thing altogether. I have a particular time I have to clock out. I get one hour a day to myself, a half-hour break, uh, lunch, two 15-minute breaks, an hour in a 10-hour shift. I have reviews every year that I have, and if I don't do well, I get in trouble. Uh, and some of you have very high-pressure jobs, sometimes minus high-pressure. If I send the wrong person to jail, it is literally a thousand dollars an hour that we pay them. Uh, and yes, yes, I have done that. And like they don't even have a court hearing. We just literally take the money and just we are so sorry. Here is your pile of money. Please go home and have a nice day. Right? That's high pressure. Uh, I think the person who has the record it was uh, a clerk put somebody in there for eighteen days. I think. Yeah, that was that was like a line item. That was such a big mistake. How do you get on that list? <laughs> I have often wondered that myself. I have often wondered that myself. $1,000 an hour. I didn't know that um, until the guy got out and they showed me the bill. Uh, and I thought, man, that is... So some of you have jobs like that, right? If, you, if you're a surgeon, right, you leave your watch in there, uh, that goes very badly. Uh, if you make a, a machine that makes airplanes and you're off a little bit, or you calculate one time really badly, I mean, so we all have high-pressure jobs. Not to mention that as parents, uh, we could literally send serial killers into the world. I mean, talk about high pressure. <laughs> I'm feeling good. This is going to be that kind of sermon. <laughs> like I said, I have a job. I'm, I'm also here. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, and, but this isn't how I make my money. I make my money. Uh, I'm the living embodiment of um, plundering the Egyptians. That's what I do every day, plunder the Egyptians. I've also been home for 10 weeks well, after we've had a baby. And I will never again ask my wife why she doesn't read more. Amen. Amen, right? My question is, why aren't we buying wine by the barrel directly from the winery? <laughs> right, Teresa? It's true. What, what is with this case-at-a-time stuff? So we all work. Um, the, the other aspect of this is, is uh, I'm looking out there, and we, if you look around, there's not a lot of unbelievers here today. Well, the world doesn't usually just walk in here. But again, raise your hand if you go into the world. Raise your hand. And what are you primarily doing while you're there? Working. And so working, now if we step back and look at not just our vocations, but work in general, this is an extension of what Dean has been talking about, about getting on mission. You are all on mission all the time, constantly. And, and, and most of us are on it and we don't even realize uh, that, that we're on mission. And so this is, this is I hopefully, going to put some, some more handles on what Dean has already said about mission. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are con, uh, continually working for us and in us and through us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to um, see in your word ourselves, that we would see the, um, can, that we would, in fact, be convicted in the way that we need and comforted in the way that we need. We pray that you would meet us here now by your spirit, that you would open your word to us, you would give us understanding. We thank you for this, and we thank you for this moment to be here with you, to be challenged and taught by you. We pray in the name of Christ that it would uh, take root in our hearts and, and grow up to good works. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Now just to clarify something, how many of you think, or at least functionally think, that work is a result of the curse? Now, yeah, some people are actually just raising their hands, but most of us act that way all the time, right? Right? Adam in the garden, naked with his wife, eating fruit. It seems pretty, doesn't seem like you could call that work. 
compared to what we do most of the time. Um, so most of us actually act like work is a curse. Work, work is the curse, but that's not true. Um, our work, uh, our relationship to our work uh, changed because of the curse, right? God says, go out and be fruitful. Now Eve is having a hard to- harder time having babies. She's having a harder time following Adam. The ground is now not obeying like it should. It, it is producing other things than fruitfulness. And, and because we broke our relationship with God, he broke our relationship um, with the earth and with one another. So that, going out and being fruitful, is actually much more difficult. It's much more difficult. But, but work existed already. It was there to be cursed. Okay? The ground was there to be, uh, the ground that we had to work was already there. We were already working it before it was cursed on our behalf. And so in, in next week, what we're going to be doing is looking at how work was affected by the curse. But this week, I want to go back and I want to look at what work was like in paradise. Because as we are freed from Satan's sin and death, we return to a state like what Adam was like in the garden. That's very important for us. In Christ, I mean, he says, my yoke is light. If you would have asked Adam on the first day, he would have said, this is a pretty light yoke. He would have not had much to complain about. And in Christ, we too can approach our work in the same way. The text today that we're going to cover is actually a bunch of verses from Genesis chapter 2. I'll read them now. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 13. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Then it goes on in verse 5, and it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Then it goes on in uh, same chapter, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Timothy Keller writes in his book, Every Good Endeavor, the book of Genesis leaves us with a striking truth, that work is part of paradise. The fact that God put work in paradise is startling to us because we so often think of work as a necessary evil or as our punishment. Yet we do not seek work, or we do not see work brought into our human story after the fall of Adam, as part of the resulting brokenness and curse. It is part of the blessedness of the garden of God. End quote. Work was part of paradise. Work was part of paradise. This is profound. Work is part of the blessing of being a human being before the fall. Work is what man was made to do. It doesn't say that there was not yet a man to worship. It doesn't say there was not yet a man to do this or that. It says there's not yet a man to work. He needed man to come along and work the ground that he had made. That, is, that was the purpose of man. Now, what I'm going to do throughout this, this particular sermon, the first of four, next week again we're going to look at it, work under sin, then we're going to look at vocations specifically, and then and the last one we're going to look at work and rest. But today I wanted to step back and look at work. What, what is work? Let's define this word. Now, what I'm going to do is imitate Jesus here. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus compared the creation of marriage to the traditions of the Jews to make a creation order argument about God's intent for marriage before the fall, right? You have all these traditions, but what Jesus wanted them to do is go back and let's look at marriage in the very beginning. Before sin, before we needed a law, let's go back and look at what God's intent was with it. That is what I'm doing here. Genesis chapter 2 is written for us, and it's before the fall. So throughout the entire chapter, God is working, man is working, and there's all this discussion about work before the fall. And I want us to go back, not because we have the traditions of the Jews, but because we have traditions of post, postmodern Americans, right? We work five days a week, not six. We are just working, working, working so that we can get over it, get past it, and get to retirement. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the greatest a fantasy I have is getting a severance package. Like somebody just pays me to leave and not have to work anymore. I would love that. I don't know what, again, I don't know how you get on that list. But I would love that, right? We, we all want, this is where we buy lotto tickets. If we had enough money, we wouldn't have to work. Uh, again, for show of hands, how many of us would like to avoid having to work? Yeah, exactly. Because we think leisure is the point. We think leisure is the point. We think having fun is the point. This is why, I mean, in no other era have they had work hours. What are you doing extending beyond the 40-hour work week? Right? This is a very modern idea because of convenience, because we've been able to conquer so much of the world. We want more time for pleasure. 
for pleasure. The fact that we have a five-day work week and not a six-day work week is just tells you a ton about man. We love three-day weekends, right? <laughs> we love them. The first two chapters of Genesis supply us with a great deal of information about God's intentions for our work. To begin to understand the meaning of our work, we need to go back and look at the purpose of man's work before the fall. Because as we are liberated from Satan, sin, and death by Christ, so too is our work. Okay, In Christ, as Adam would have said, we can say too, our yoke is light. Now, wouldn't that change your work day? Wouldn't that change your work week? Wouldn't that change your everyday life? My yoke too is light? I I don't think I've said that recently. I don't think I've said that recently. Now, why? Why would I have not said that? This is what we're going to explore. Now, here, um, we were made to work because we were made in God's image. As miniatures of the living God. Genesis 1.26 says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Dorothy Sayers, I don't know if most of you have heard of her. Um, she was a contemporary of Lewis and Tolkien, uh, e- easily as intelligent and um, profound in what she had to say about the Christian life. But she wrote a book called The Mind of the Maker. And in The Mind of the Maker, this is what she says. It is observable that in the passage leading up to the statement about man, we are given no detailed information about God. Looking at man, we see in him something essentially divine. But when we turn back to see what is said about the original upon which the image of God was modeled, we find only this single assertion. God created. The characteristic common to God and man is apparently this, the desire and the ability to make things, to make things. John Piper elaborates on this. He he was asked about this book because he he was at a conference telling people they should read it. So he's asked, and this is what he had to say about this. It shook me that virtually everything we do in life is the making of something into something else. We make something happen, or we make something last, or we make something into something else. We make a rocky field into a garden, or a stick into a spear, or a rock into a hammer, or an empty apartment into a home, or a cow into a a steak. That's my favorite. (laughs) The list could just go on and on. I think it would... Uh, I think it'd just be really, really good for Christians to think of themselves as being made made the first time and then remade in Christ to be makers with God. They are called to take what God has made in all of its now present falseness and remake it into something Godward and beautiful and Christ-honoring with a deep sense of fulfillment of who we are as created in the image of a maker. So he made makers. And he filled a world full of things for us to make and other things. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Jesus, we are being restored to our pre-fall co-worker status with God, true image bearers who were made to make. Okay? You are made to make. That is what you are here for. I, all of you have a myriad of different jobs. Now, in, in, I said myriad, right? Thank you. In all of those jobs, think about it. You are actually making something, right? I make rap sheets at work, right? I enter everyone's crimes in there, and there, bam, and when I'm done, you have a rap sheet. It's, it's amazing. It wasn't there, and now it is. Right? I make receipts. I make passports. I make all kinds of things. I make court orders. Uh, I can actually define in your life where you can and cannot go. Uh, I need a judge to do it, but again, this is the codependency of, of all of our work. But even in the work that I do, I'm creating something. I'm creating boundaries or taking boundaries away. Now, you're making airplanes, you're making bread, you're making painted offices, you're making ankles at work, you're making sermons, you're making children. You're, everyone is making all the time. Man's purpose is to work, and that work is essentially remaking the elements of this world into fruitful, God-honoring, neighbor-serving blessings. Right? There's lots of jobs that are not lawful. Uh, if you're making poisonous gas to then drop on a bunch of Kurds living in the middle of Iraq, you are not doing a lawful job. Right? You're making something, but you're not making something good, God-honoring, and blessing to your neighbor. Correct? So what I'm going to assume here is that we're talking about lawful jobs. Okay? Making crack cocaine is not what I'm talking about. But, I mean, even that, you're making something. You can't escape it. You can't escape it. 
Now, this is where we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. <laughs> God is exercising dominion through creative acts, filling the world in which man is placed to continue to exercise and fill the earth with work that reflects God's goodness. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Right? He has dominion. He says, let there be light and there's light. Let there be rock, there are rocks. Let there be fish, there's fish. And then what he does is he makes him a little miniature of himself who then goes and takes those things and makes them into other things. So to understand man at work, this is the sermon has one point. This is, we're now entering into it. There's one point. If we're going to understand man at work, if we're going to continue on from here and look at vocations and rest and what sin has done to work, we have to look at God at work. What was God doing in the beginning? His work was finished. What does that mean? He's, he's still around, right? He's not just on a lazy boy somewhere drinking Coca-Colas. He's still working, isn't he? But it says very emphatically, his work was finished. So what does that mean? And what did he make? And how did he make it? And what was the purpose of what he made? So in the beginning, then, we look at God at work. Work was not a necessary evil that came into the picture later or something human beings were created to do, was but was beneath God himself. The Bible begins with God working for six days. We will return to the pattern of this later in another sermon, but for now it is important to note that the first thing the Bible shows us about God is that he is a creative, competent, efficient, and caring worker. His work provides for others, blesses others, meets the needs of others, and makes life possible for others. In Genesis 2.2, the word work is translated from the Hebrew word avodah. Avodah. It's cool. Avodah. This is what it is. It's, it's translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as work, service, craftsmanship, and worship. There is not one word used for God's work and then later another word used for man's work. This is, I think, a very interesting and helpful um, detail. There are not two different words to refer to God's work and then man's work. The same word is used for both. The word avodah is used for the backbreaking labor of Israelite slaves making bricks in Exodus 1.14, the artisans building the tabernacle in Exodus 35.24, the fine craftsmanship of linen workers in 1 Chronicles 4.21, and Solomon dedicating the temple and the activities of the priests within it in 2 Chronicles 8.14. Whether it's making bricks or crafting fine linen or leading others in corporate worship, the Old Testament writers present a seamless understanding of work as an image-bearing activity. God worked, and the work of men, whether they are laborers, craftsmen, artisans, kings, or priests, whether they are doing a secular job or a sacred job, the work is an, an imitation of that work that God engaged in during creation week. Okay? Now, there's a lot of distinctions about work that we can make. But it's important that in a dignifying and ennobling to understand that when you are changing a baby's diaper or digging a trench or making a law or whatever it is that any of you do, you are all engaging in the same creative work that God did in the beginning. He sees no difference in it. In, our, in the language of the Jews, there was no, not two words for it. Furthermore, there's not a word for priests and a word for laborers. If you're digging a ditch or you're making the showbread, you are engaging in work, the same creative, um, neighbor-blessing, selfless work that God was doing in Genesis chapter 1. Adam is told to work and keep the garden, which is the same thing that the priests are told to do in the tabernacle. Eden is God's holy home on earth. That's what it is. It's where he lives. Adam is a priest gardener. His work is worship. His worship is work. God doesn't say go in there and do these things as a priest and these things as a gardener. The first man was a priest, and he was a gardener. He was a priest gardener. Right Now, in Christ, we are, as Dean has so wonderfully pointed out, a priesthood of believers. And so you, you take that vocation and you add it to whatever other vocation that you have. And so we are priest engineers, we are priest executives, priest painters, priest clerks, priest jewelers, priest programmers, priest coders, priest teachers, priest moms, priest dads, priest breadwinners, and priest bread makers. For now on, don't say, I am a mom. Say, I am a priest mom. <laughs> Everyone outside of our church will think you're nuts, but that's fine. 
It's fine. It leads somewhere. Your priest moms, <laughs> your priest engineers, your priest painters, your priest jewelers. I'm looking at you back there. Adam was made to work the ground in the garden. He was a laborer and a priest. The two are the same. Work is worship, and worship is work. This is important. I can't express how important it is for us to understand this. There is no dichotomy between work and worship in Genesis 1 and 2. Being restored to an Eden-like state through the redemption of Jesus Christ, your work, your labor, is your act of worship Monday through Friday. It's not like Dean and I, as pastors, or the deacons or something, are doing religious work over here, and then everybody else goes out and does secular work over here, and they're two separate things. right? Also, you don't worship one day a week. You worship seven days a week. The difference isn't secular and sacred. The difference is individual or corporate. Here, on Sunday mornings, we are worshiping God together. The other six days of the week, you are going out and you are worshiping God in what you do, no matter what it is. Right? And, and <laughs> think of all the things that God made, all the things that he was involved in creating. There is nothing beneath him. There is no work that any of you do ever that is beneath him. It's his. You're working his ground. We separate what God has joined together and we reap disunity and brokenness in our daily lives. I won't make you raise your hands, but how many of you struggle with the fact that your job is meaningless? It's mundane, repetitive, boring, and meaningless. Nobody cares, right? Everyone wants to change the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. Right? We're just housewives. Yeah, that, that is the world that has lied to us since we were children, and we often believe it. Right? Because we're told what? Women who mean something go out there and do the kind of work men do. It's disgusting. But we've all believed this lie. Rather, rather we come right out and say that. It's true. Seeing that God's work is imitated in laborers, artisans, craftsmen, mothers, coders, painters, clerks, doctors, etc., it redeems work from the false dichotomies that so many Christians have subjected it to. This, I hope, is going to be very liberating for all of us. All work is worship. Unbelievers work to serve their gods. Mammon, themselves, Baal, Sex, leisure, easy, safe, selfishness, while all the work that Christians engage in is worship. It's sacred. Uh, Martin Luther famously said that God milks cows through the milkmaid. Right? He's there in that work. It wasn't beneath him. And in the Reformation, it was, it was more than ever in, in the history at that point was this, this false idea existed. It exists now as well, I think. We're just as confused as they were during the Reformation. And, and part of the Protestant Reformation was this. Your work matters. Whether you're a milkmaid or you're a priest or you're the pope or you're a king, your work matters. The mom changing diapers, the coder, the engineer, the cop, the executive, the pastor, the court clerk, the dispatcher, the house painter, the fill-in-the-blank. All Christian workers, whatever the work, are imitating God the worker, or like Adam in the garden, a worshiping worker, a priestly laborer. Now, you might be wondering... Is Mike saying that there is no difference whatsoever between God making things with the power of his words and me wiping dirty backsides with a wet wipe? And in one sense, no, there is no difference. None. Now, making distinctions is not the same thing as making dichotomies. There is a difference, right, in another sense. And it's important to understand that difference. But what I want us to really like, really get into our bones, because it's contrary to what we usually hear, is that when God is working and you are working, the two things go together. They're similar. They're similar. Every job, every vocation, every bit of work you do is ennobled by the fact that God worked as well. Okay? But at the same time, we can make distinctions. First, God makes things by speaking. Um, I have tried this. You cannot make a steak by saying steak. You can't, right? I love that thing in Star Trek where they walk up to that machine and you just say what you want and it gives it to you. I could not have that machine. I would die. <laughs> I, would, I would die. It's bad enough now when I can go to Costco and fill my refrigerator. If I had a machine that literally made whatever I wanted, it would be terrible. God makes things, as I say, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God makes iron ore. Man cannot make iron ore. He cannot do it. 
He can make synthetic iron ore, but it's not iron ore, is it? Now, a man can dig iron ore out of the ground and make all kinds of things out of it. But no matter what we do, we cannot make iron ore. We cannot make elements. We cannot make atoms. Uh, one, one, there's movies that I love, and then all of a sudden they do things that I hate. It's like in Iron Man, he makes a new element, like a brand new element. It's like, that's, you can't do that. Apparently, Iron Man is God, which if you watch all the movies, that is exactly what they're trying to say. But I mean, human beings can't make, you can make new metal out of other metals, but you can't make new elements. Right? God made all of them. And what you do is you take these elements and these atoms and you turn them into other things. Sorry. <clears throat> Genesis 2.2 says God's work was finished. Okay, here's another distinction. It's important to note that God's work fits into different vocations just as man does. God works, but he has different vocations like we do. Now, this isn't modalism, which is the heresy that God works in different modes, but a, a father and a husband and um, a court clerk can be have different vocations at the same time, and it's always me, right? It's always me, and often those vocations inter, interconnect, and, and God is the same way. We're made in his image because we see God is a creator. He creates, and that work comes to an end. Then what he does is he moves into the work of providence. And after the fall, he has a third vocation, that of redeemer. And so God is always at work. He didn't wind up the world like a clock and set it on the mantle and again sits in a barca lounger drinking sodas. It's not what he does. Genesis 2.2 says God's work is finished. But the second chapter of Genesis goes on to show that God's work not only as a, he, he doesn't only work as a creator but as a sustainer. He forms a man, Genesis 2.7. He plants a garden for him and waters it, Genesis 2.6-8, through and fashions a wife for man, Genesis 2.21-22. through The rest of the Bible tells us that God continues this work. Psalm 147.8-9. He covers the heavens with clouds. He doesn't make new ones. He covers them with the clouds that already exist. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The young ravens that cry. He's feeding young ravens. He is not disengaged from this world. The answer to question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it beautifully. And this is what it says. God, by his hand, still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance but by his fatherly hand. So God doesn't work in the beginning and then stop and just let it let the thing run all by itself. He creates, that's one work that's finished. Now he's doing the work of providence. Okay, Jesus says this, John 5:17. My father is working until now and I am working, and he said it on the Sabbath, which we're going to get into. It's terrible, Jesus. How dare you say such a thing? My father is working until now, and I am working. Lastly, Jesus was asked what the work of God was, and this is one of my, I, I love this verse in the Bible. This is how I became a Calvinist reading this right here. This is what he says to his disciples. They say, what is the work of God? Because they want to do the work of God. And the answer is, this is the work of God that you believe. And I remember that, like, wait a minute, I thought that was my work that I believe. It's God's work that we believe. And so God, the creator, created, he's finished. He moves into providence, and then, because of the fall, he's now also the redeemer. He has three jobs, three vocations, all inter interacting with one another. Colossians 1, 16 through 20 puts it really well. It talks about God with Jesus creating the world. It talks about how everything is held together through Jesus, and then that everything is remade through Jesus in the end by the blood of his cross. It's all three vocations right there. Indeed, we must see that though God finishes work of creation, including humans who imitate that creative work, he continues together with the Son and the Spirit to uphold creation and work diligently for its redemption. Now, enough of the distinctions. They're not dichotomies. These are all distinctions of God's work. But let's go back to the beginning where he was working and then made workers. Let's look at the work that he did in the beginning, the characteristics of that work so that we know when we go to work, what is our work supposed to look like? What's the point? How did God work? The first thing we're going to look at is that God's work is selfless. 
God's work is selfless. Now, Jesus has a great deal to say about selflessness. But let's go back to the very beginning where it's the creator God, and let's think about this for a second. God is all-sufficient is all unto himself. He's self-sufficient. Okay? He does not need light. He does not need food. He does not need man to fulfill any relational needs within himself. He's the triune God. For eternity, there's been a community living and loving together. They don't need man. They have themselves. Right? God has himself. He doesn't need man. He doesn't eat food. He doesn't need light because he doesn't see in that way. Nothing that God made was necessary. Nothing. Look at the world that he, he made and, and all, go all the way through Genesis chapter 1. Look at it. He doesn't need any of it. None of it. Look at all the variety. Look at everything that he made. He doesn't need an, an inch of it. He made light and he made objects that reflect that light. And he made eyes to see those objects, to see flowers and mountain ranges and woman. He made deer which are swift and majestic and hard to hunt. He also gave them hides for warmth and covered them in meat. <laughs> I like that, right? There's like several vocations right there. He makes a very swift moving animal. And so we have to sharpen a stick and throw it at it. Well, that doesn't work. Okay, well, let's shoot that little tiny stick with a bow. Oh, over a period of time, you know, it's actually easier making a trap for it. Oh, and then even easier when you get a gun and you shoot it from like 300 yards away. Right? We progressively, you see the progression of man in something like this. But does God need deer? Does he need them covered in meat? Thank God he covered them in meat, but he doesn't need that. There is not one single thing that God made that was necessary for him. Variety itself wasn't necessary. How many vegetables do we really need? Think of all the vegetables. I mean, uh, it's unfortunate that there are so many, but think about how many there are. <laughs> There's an endless number. Because, I mean, manna came down out of heaven. And for 40 years, apparently, you don't need variety to help keep people alive. If you would have turned the manna over on the back, the nutritional information, okay, it would have been 100% in every category based on a 2,000-calorie diet. The manna had everything. A, done, got it. Iron, got it, done. Calcium, fiber, it's got it all. And yet, and yet, he made a world full of variety. Think of an apple and a pineapple. I mean... They're two fruits. Okay, there's some similarity there, but how different are they? How different are they? Do you, do you need? He doesn't need a pineapple, let alone a pineapple and an apple. Who is he doing this for? God made everything to serve everything else. Nothing is made for itself. Nothing. Dead animals give life to grass, which gives life to animals. Trees hold the earth steady. The dirt, I mean, not like spinning in the air. Trees make air that animals breathe. Bees pollinate flowers. Seeds are buried in fruit. I love that. I cannot, I was like, why, did, why is the seed buried in this apple, Dad? Well, it's because uh, as you throw it out the car window as we're driving by here, uh, it's hoping that it grows into another tree. And I remember that as a kid. I was thinking, that's genius. Just, I carry this apple away from the orchard, and I could, wherever I throw it on the ground, it could possibly grow into another tree. That is unbelievable. And this is right. This is how it works. Here, why he could just make seeds that fall off the tree that grow into other trees, but he covers them with apple, which is actually a fruit I enjoy. It's amazing. The overflow of creative joy, the overflow of creative joy. This is what our, our John Piper is so eloquent on this. Go back and listen to his, some of his sermons on this. Right? God overflows in the creative act. Okay, there's not, and it's not because there's right? A bucket overflows not because it's broken, but because you keep filling it with things. It's just overflowing, right? God isn't broken and overflowing. He's overflowing because he's God. And he creates all, this whole world full of potential, full of variety, full of dangerous things and glorious things. And he doesn't need any of it, right? I mean, a scorpion can't kill him, but he made a scorpion. He made snakes. He made all kinds of things. It's crazy. He doesn't need any of it. So, everything serves everything else. So let's think about one object that we see all the time that we, we, we take for granted in this. Let's think about the sun for a moment. Now, the sun is a created thing. It cannot fall into sin. And it was given one job. 
one job. And my wife just pointed this out to me while, while we were working on this. It's amazing. If you think about it from our point of view, the sun rises and the sun sets. It's doing different things. But from the sun's point of view, it doesn't do anything differently. It stands there in the center of the room of the solar system and just stands there. It just stands there, emitting life. Now, this is what David had to say about it. Psalm 19, verses 4 through 5. This is how David describes the sun's delight in his work in the heavens. In the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Now, I don't know anyone or thing that has a more mundane, monotonous job than the sun. And yet it goes out of its tent like a, like a newly married man. That's suggested there. He's all about the one thing, right? He's a strong, he's not tired of it. He's a strong man. He stands there in the center of the room, exactly where God told him to stand, and he stands there. And he does it joyfully. Now, I think it's obvious that the fall has, has corrupted this. I think Adam was like this. Adam would have probably stayed, wouldn't fine. I, this is great work. I could do this forever like the sun. But sin has come in and, and, and destroyed this. We, we don't have the sun-like joy in our work like we did in the beginning. The sun takes to his task like a newly married man, like a strong man, joy. God's works are selfless for the enjoyment and blessing of others. Our work is likewise meant to be others-focused. If we are working for mere pay, if we are working for accolades, for distraction from our home life, it's utterly sinful. You are made to work like he works. His work is selfless. Now, again, this is where I stop asking for hands, but how many of us go to work uh, for mere selfless reasons every day? Right? We go for pay. We go to get attaboys. We go to earn, right? I go for medical benefits. Uh, sometimes that's the only reason I go, because I know the kids can go to the doctor. But that's not why God is working. Work is not a necessary evil until retirement. I'm, I'm really sorry to be the one that had to tell you that. Work is not about you. It's about those who your work serves. After your spouse, your children are your primary neighbors. Now, you are tying their shoes because they can't. You are cutting their sandwiches because they can't, right? You cannot give my son, Lewis a knife. You can't. Not a butter knife. I'm uncomfortable with him with forks. You can't give little kids that. You're cutting it for them because they can't do it themselves. They can't. In in those acts of service that are mundane and all too often considered so meaningless, your work is fulfilling half of the greatest commandment. That mundane, seemingly pointless work is fulfilling half the greatest commandment. Love thy neighbor. And that changes it, doesn't it? You are imitating God in this work. The question is, are you imitating the sun? Likewise, if you are making an airplane or painting an office or coding, if you're determining new retirement benefits based on the annual COLA, I wonder who I'm thinking of. If you are bookkeeping at a grocery store, it's because other people can't do it for themselves. Imagine if I went to the grocery store and I had to stock the shelves, buy the stuff, and then do the bookkeeping at the end. That would be awful. I would just move on a farm and grow things myself. Everything that you are doing is because I can't make an airplane. I can, I can fly on an airplane. I can't make one. Again, if you want a passport, you can't make it yourself. You've got to come see me. Everything we do is because other people need us to do it. Are you working, not for pay, not for attaboys, not in the fear of men? Are, are you working for the sake of selfless service? Okay, but God's work is not just selfless. It's also good. His work is good. The phrase uttered by God over his creation, and it was good, is found throughout Genesis chapter 1. It's found in verses 10 and 12, 18 and 21 and 25. And then in verse 31, it says, it sums up the whole thing. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So God doesn't just make things selflessly. He makes them well. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian thinker, points out that and when God is finished with his work, what he has made speaks of the God who made it. 
It's reflecting him. Psalm 119.68, David says, You are good and do good. This is what he says of God. You are good and you do good. And so if God makes something, what is it going to be? Crappy? Shoddy? All of creation reflects God, as it says in Romans 1, 20 through 21. God is good and he does good. So if God creates, then that creation is in fact good. The work reflects the character of the worker in the beginning. And you were made to imitate this. The work that you do is an imitation, is a sub-creation of your character. Listen to how wisdom personified recounts the making of the world. Okay? In the book of Proverbs, wisdom at some point stands up and speaks. Now, is this wisdom personified or Jesus? Right? There's different interpretations. But just think of wisdom personified. If wisdom were speaking here to us. Now, this is what she says about the creation. When he, God, established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress its command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. So his work is good and his work is, is, is praised by wisdom because the work that he does reflects his character. Does the work you do reflect your character? Like all good and satisfying work, the worker sees himself in the work itself. The goodness of God's work is instructive to us. It's not enough to exhort all of you to labor fairly, to encourage you to honor God and bless others with your work. We've done that. It's not enough, though. Imitating God in your work means that you don't just refrain from stealing paper clips and show up on time. Okay? It's funny, I have a collection of pins from everywhere I've ever worked. And it's like, it's like autobiographical. I'm going to write with this one. I remember this. This is a UPS pin. Right? Because I've stolen pins from everywhere I work. That's my point. But just telling me to stop doing that is not the same thing as telling me to work like God. It's not, it's not, it's not enough. Right? Just show up and don't steal stuff. I mean, we can't really go that low. From designing machines to changing diapers, your work should be good. To be imitators and image bearers, your work must be good. Now, I'm going to go back to Dorothy Sayers for a moment. She wrote an, an essay uh, that I was forced against my will to read when I was at Providence and that now I exhort all of you to read. <laughs> if you're going to work here, you have to read this. Okay. It's called Why Work? Why Work? And, and it's free online. Go and, and, and read it. It's short. It's, it's magnificent. But in there, this is what she says. She takes a real crack at carpenters here. This is funny. But The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> she must know some carpenters that I know. Right? Don't be drunk and disorderly on your weekends and go to church. Right? That's not all the church should tell a carpenter. <laughs> I'm sorry, carpenters. I'm sorry. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that your religion makes upon you is that you should make good tables. Good tables. You are God's image bearers, being remade by God. Therefore, you are to, to make things that are good. Good tables, good machines, good spreadsheets, good bread. You are to make good love, good homes, good essays, good computers, good videos, good websites, and good sermons. Every one of you is engaged in work. Work for others. Do it well. It's the reason, it's the reason that you were made. It's the reason you were made. That job that I know is mundane. That work that you're doing that is just repetitive and lame and seems pointless. It's not flashy. You're not going to be on the news. No one's going to write a biography of any of you. <laughs> me included. I will be lucky if my grandkids remember me. Right? How many of you know your great-grandmother? Okay, there's a few people raising their hands. Most of us don't know our own grandparents because we're here and gone. The work, right? What, what do you... 
What is the work for? It's for the person you're working next to. It's the person at the window. And it's supposed to be done for them, and it's supposed to be done well. God created a good world full of potential to give all of his children meaningful work. God's work of creation provides for an endless number of potential vocations for all of mankind. God made each of you to work in a particular field selflessly and well. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God puts human beings into the garden to work and keep it. The implication is that while God, uh, while God works for us as our provider, we also work for him. Right? He needed a gardener. <laughs> He's the king. Kings have gardeners. Indeed, he works through us, right? He's working through Adam in the garden to keep and to guard the garden. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he tells human beings to fill the earth and subdue it. This is his command to man, man made in God's image, male and female. The work of man is a communal activity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all creating this world that we live in. Selflessly and well. And our work is, like, is supposed to imitate that. It's communal. It's communal. The word subdue indicates that though all God had made was good, it was still to a great degree undeveloped. God left creation with deep, untapped potential for cultivation that people were to unlock through their labor together. Potential that we were to unlock together. God put iron ore into the ground to be dug up by one man, shaped into steel by another, and made into a car by another. I eat bread sold to me by a grocer, stocked by a stock boy, driven to the store by a trucker, packaged by a machine worker, baked by a baker, from wheat grown by a farmer who tilled the earth using machines that required another swath of society to make that I could go on for another 20 minutes talking about. God's work is an interdependent form of communion. Communion of, with man of man, man with man, and man with God. Man with man and man with God. We depend on one another and we depend on God. Long before Abraham was given a promise that required faith, man was given a command that required faith. I can plant seeds all day long and I cannot make it rain. Before Abraham went about his work with faith, Adam had to go about his work with faith. God depends on us to cultivate, subdue, and make something out of everything that he created. He created an interdependent universe. We plant a seed, but who waters it through his providential care? God and man building together. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Okay, so this is where I'm going to bring it all together. Okay, we're going to now define the word work. And this, is, this will be my close. I'm going to go back to what was read for us uh, so wonderfully this morning by Joel. John 4, 33-38. Now, everything that I've set up, now listen. Listen for these key words. Work, communal, interdependence. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something, him being Jesus, something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered in to their labor. Now, what is going on here is this. Jesus is using everything that I've said about the creation order to make a spiritual point. He, he, he has just had the incident at the well. Everyone, I think, most of us who've read the Bible for any period of time know the story. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at a well, right? He's at work as the Messiah, standing around the water cooler, talking to the unbelieving girl. This is how I like to think of the story. And what is he, he does exactly what Dean told us to do. He's asking questions. Now, what I find fascinating here, well, I find many things fascinating, but one other thing I find fascinating is that where did this Samaritan woman who's living such a promiscuous life get all of this education, this religious education? Somebody has been planting. Someone has been weeding. Other people have been working here. And here comes the Messiah with the winnowing fork to separate fruit from chaff. 
Jesus does what we should do. He's standing around the water cooler asking questions. Now, other people have already been involved in this work of this woman's salvation. Through their labors. She can't go into the temple. She's a Samaritan woman. She can't hang around with Jewish priests and learn from them. Where does she get all of this other stuff? The Samaritan woman seems to have been given many elements of truth of what Jesus brings to fruition. Jesus, looking to the Father, enters the labors of sower and reaper, threshing the fruit from the chaff as the priest gardener, as the true man. Now, he's using something in the physical world to teach us a spiritual truth. And this is what you need to go and see all of your labor as. You may not be going out and converting people with just sudden procrastinations of the gospel. I don't even know what I just said. You're not just going out and delivering these phenomenal sermons on the fly at somebody's door and bam, they're converted. We're not sending you out into the world to go door to door to get people to sign on a dotted line. Go and plant seeds. Go and ask questions. Right? You're, do your work as under the Lord. Do it well. Do it for the service of others and see what God does. Look at it differently. This is a church on mission. Being who you were created to be. In Genesis 2-2, we see that God's work is complete, but it is complete as a cornucopia of potential. Now, in Christ, this is what you are restored to. Okay, let me go back to the thing with the Samaritan woman, and let me read these verses, and this is actually the end. Listen. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building in which he dwells. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do you go on mission? There's lots of things to be said about this. Dean gave us a ton of wonderful things to go and do, but let me just keep, let's go down to this level. Go and do your work well. Do it in the service of others. Planting, weeding, reaping, sowing, doing all. Right? God will be working through you if, if you are looking to him. Your work requires faith. It requires faith. It's not meaningless. It's, as we're going to go on to see, it's God working through you in the world to bring about the Great Commission and the cultural mandate. There is no meaningless work that any of you do. And so, do it well and do it under the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time to hear your word. Pray, Lord, that it would uh, take root in our hearts, that it would encourage us and strengthen us. I pray, Father, that we would go from here and that we would uh, repent of those things of which we need to repent, but that we would grab hold of Christ and that we would imitate him, that we would look to him, Father, to finish the work that you have started in us. We pray that as we go and we labor in the world, that we would do it well and that we would do it like Christ as servants and that we would look to you, Father, to bring the fruit. You are a good God, a faithful God, an active God, a God that has brought us all into this community together to cleanse and clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for your son. We pray, Lord, that we would go from here and work, do our work as under the Lord. Amen.